Uh, quick, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been desperate for anything? Raise your hand. Um, desperation is probably not a bad thing. It could be a bad thing. I was reading a study, um, a, a study, like a blog post on eHarmony, um, eHarmony.com. If you're, well, if you're married, you shouldn't be dealing with eHarmony. That's not good. Um, but if you're not, uh, you might have some, you know, interaction with eHarmony. But they wrote this article called um, Seven Signs of a Desperate Dater. I don't know if you're ever dating pe- people like this, but um, here's a couple of them. I won't give you all seven. I'm see if I can remember. One of them was um, desperate daters are clingy. Everybody loves clingy people, right? And um, desperate daters require constant relationship status updates. Right? You know these people? Right? Like you're, every day they're talking to you. They're like, are we okay? Are we okay? Are we okay? And you're like, yes, yes, not anymore. <laughs> right? Leave me alone. Constant. Constant relationship updates. Um, here's another one. Uh, desperate daters get rid of their friends. And then desperate daters get rid of their standards. They just t- completely get rid of their standards. If, if you've ever been desperate, you know that being desperate can sometimes make you do bad things, right? We don't want to admit it, but it's true. What we're going to see this morning in our story in Luke is that sometimes being desperate can actually make us do good things. And so we're going to meet two people in this, in this Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56, the last part of Luke chapter 8. We're going to meet two people who were desperate, and they did something good as a result of being desperate. So I want to introduce you um, to a desperate man, a desperate woman, and the Savior of desperate people. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, so let me just catch us up on this series that we're doing called True Story and why it's called True Story and why we're in the Gospel of Luke. Um, a couple of years back, the hashtag True Story was really, really popular. It was trending on Twitter, right? And so it was really big for about a month, and then it was just so overplayed. Everybody was using it all the time, like, hashtag True Story, you know. But here's what it meant. It meant that you could almost say anything you wanted to, right? And the more outlandish, the better. It's like, the other day, I was driving down the road. I know I'm way past 140 characters now, but just work with me, right? And I saw a wreck, and this woman was caught underneath the car, and I single-handedly lifted the car up off of that woman, and she crawled to safety. Your friends are like, dude, that is the biggest crock I've ever heard. And you're like, no, hashtag true story. Oh, whoa, dude, it really happened, right? That's the way that hashtag works. And so if you hashtag it, it happened. It's like this stamp of validation on whatever you just said. So in Luke, it's amazing how the gospel of Luke is kind of like the very first hashtag true story. Because this this man named Theophilus, he was a wealthy Gentile. The world was kind of divided into Jews and Gentiles. So you were a Jew and everybody else was a Gentile. Most of us in this room would be Gentiles, right? So this man was a Gentile. He was an outsider, And he was either following Jesus or he was considering whether or not to follow Jesus. And so he had this doctor, his name was Luke, because Luke's a physician. And so I don't know how this happened, if it was during a doctor visit or not, but they're having this conversation. And it kind of went like this. Theophilus, this really wealthy man, says to to Dr. Luke, listen, I've heard these stories about Jesus. I've heard like things like he was born of a virgin heard about like he would pray for sick people and they'd be healed something about feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes 
I even heard about like he was crucified and he rose again. These crazy stories, I'm not sure if they're true. And, and all the people that saw these happen are starting to die off. And I'm just, how can we document? How can we investigate? Is there some way that we can prove that what we've heard is true? That the unbelievable stories could possibly be the undeniable stories about Jesus. And Dr. Luke said, I think there's a way we can do it. We can investigate. I can talk to eyewitnesses. And so Theophilus, and wouldn't you love to have a friend like this? Theophilus says, I'll fund it. Like he was funding before GoFundMe was popular, right? He funded. He said, you take as much time as you need. You travel wherever you need to travel. You talk to whoever you need to talk to. The people that witnessed these events, and you find out from me if they're true, and then you write me a report, and you bring it back to me so that I can be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he would do. And I'll fund it, however long it takes. I don't know if that means that Luke was, like, you know, traveling slower, really enjoying the time off. But Luke took him at his word. He investigated the stories and what we have in our Bible called the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. These are the two books that Luke wrote, and these are like his report back to Theophilus. So when we read the Gospel of Luke, the stories that we read, they sound unbelievable. But we know because of the history of how this book came to be that they're undeniable. This is a true account of who Jesus was and what he did. This is hashtag true story before that was even popular. So this morning, we're going to find in the end of Luke 8 that he's going to encounter these two desperate people. And he's going to be a savior for desperate people, which is such good news. If you're sitting in this room and you find yourself in a desperate place, I want you to know it's okay to be desperate. It's not a bad thing. And sometimes we equate desperation with weakness. And we think, man, if you're desperate, that's terrible. That's only if you're a desperate dater, right? We don't want anything to do with those people. But it's okay to face desperate situations. It's okay to find yourself often crying out to God and saying, God, please, if you don't do something, I'm dead. It's the only shot that I have. And so at the end of Luke chapter 8, what's great about this is that if you remember before we took our break and did breathe, we started looking at Luke chapter 8. And we remember the story about the, the parable of the sowers. And so there was, there was this, this sower, he went out, he's, he's sowing seed. And the seed would fall into four different types of soil. And so we saw that it would fall on, on you know, like hard soil and rocky soil. It would fall on thorny soil, so it would grow a little bit and then get squashed out. And then it would fall on good soil. And so it sounds like it's all about soil. What it's really about is this, this power of the authority of the Word of God. And so he teaches this parable. Look like, look, I'm Jesus. I've got authority. And that's critical because what is Luke doing? Luke is writing this gospel to prove to a Gentile that Jesus has the authority as the Son of God and Son of Man. And so he's like, Jesus, I've got authority. My word has authority. It can grow and produce a crop of 30, 60, 100 fold. And then he goes out and proves it, right? He, he calms the storm. He has authority over the weather. And that'd be great if we had authority over the weather, right? Like, make it snow now. Wouldn't that be awesome? And, and then he, he encounters a demon-possessed man. He's got authority over demons. And so what we're going to see today is he also has authority over sickness and even over death. All in one chapter. And so we're going to pick it up. Luke chapter 8, just kind of walk through a desperate man and a desperate woman and the Savior of desperate people. So it says this, that, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. This is um, Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 8, verse 40. So let's make sure that we see what's going on here. Um, if you remember back, the whole chapter 8 is like this. This is someday for Jesus. Jesus never got breaks. 
So Jesus, um, he gets in a boat, right? He teaches us the parable about the, the sower, and he gets in a boat. He says to his, his disciples, look, guys, let's go hang in a boat. Let's go like a day off. And so they're going across the lake, and what do they encounter? They encounter a storm. Jesus is really tired, so he's sleeping. They wake him up. We're going to die. And so he, Jesus says, be still. And the whole storm's like, whew, quiet. Jesus is like, that's great. Now I can rest again. They land. They step on the shore. Do you remember who they encountered right away? The Bible says as soon as they stepped on the shore, crazy, naked, demon-possessed man. Do you remember this story? Comes running at Jesus. He's talking in his demon voice, right? He's like, what do you want to do with me, son of God? He's like, whatever, that was a terrible demon voice, but you get the picture. He's talking in his demon voice. This is as soon as Jesus stepped on the shore. This naked, crazy man. It'd be like you going to Walmart. Wait, that's probably happened. Anyway, <laughs> naked person just running at you like crazy. You're just like, whoa, whoa I can't even get my bearings straight. Disciples haven't even parked the boat yet, and they're already encountering a naked demon-possessed man. And he cast the demon out of that man into a whole bunch of pigs. Remember that? And then the pigs run over the cliff, and the pigs are lost forever. And the village gets mad because he just ruined the bacon. I mean, I get mad too if I lose my bacon, but he, he ruined all that. And so they ran him out of town. And so this says he gets in the boat, and he goes back across the same lake. And on the same day, he steps off onto the shore... And he encounters a crowd waiting for him. This is Jesus that cannot get a break on his day off. In a boat, calm a storm, naked, crazy, demons, this man, ruined the bacon. In a boat, on the shore, crowd waiting. And that's where we pick the story up. And not only is there a crowd waiting for him, it says that then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. And this was unusual. Synagogue rulers in that day, they had position, they had power, they had authority. They, they, they played the part well. They didn't plead with anybody. They gave a command and somebody else did it. This man's begging Jesus to go to his house. Why is a man in that position so desperate that he would beg Jesus to come to his house? The next verse tells us why. Because his only daughter, a daughter who was about 12, was dying. Now, I'm going to say this right up front. I'm going to be as sensitive as I can. I have no idea what this is like. I cannot imagine. Sydney's 13, getting ready to turn 14. I cannot imagine a daughter of 12 years old dying. I can't imagine loading her up in the car, going to the hospital, having tests run, and a doctor sitting across from me and saying, your daughter will die. This time next year, she will not be here. I cannot imagine that. But this is what the synagogue ruler was facing. He was so overwhelmed and so desperate for something to be done for his daughter that he left his daughter at home. Now, again, if my daughter's dying and I don't know when, I'm not leaving the house. He left his daughter at home with his family, to go and seek Jesus. He's desperate. You've got to sense this desperation. And if you're a parent, you already kind of feel like, even as I'm talking about it, you're kind of like, Ugh, I don't even like the way this feels, thinking about my child dying. But that's what this man was facing. And so he did what religious leaders would never do. He aligned with Jesus. Now, again, in this day, we already know this. There's already a division, right, between the religious leaders and Jesus. And the religious leaders, who he's a part of, are going to find ways to try to kill Jesus. 
And this man leaves the group he's with and falls at the feet of the man that they want to kill because he's desperate. He pleads with Jesus, begs him to come and heal his daughter. Listen, I don't know um, what your work situation is like, but can you imagine your boss begging anybody? If you, have, you might be the boss if you have a boss. Most bosses don't beg. Typically what happens is the higher we go in, in power and authority, the more reserved that we tend to get. Right? We, we start to dress a little bit nicer. I was, watching, um, I was watching the Hall of Fame inductions last night, and I was just hoping that Brett Favre was going to walk out in jeans. I just was like, this, if anybody's going to do it, he's going to do it. But even he wore dress slacks, right? I mean, like we tend to not be who we are the higher that we go. We feel like we have to play the part put on a certain characteristics and, and wear certain things and, and be seen a certain way. This man was no different. Except now he's so desperate for his daughter to be healed that this synagogue ruler who is usually sitting, calculating, asking others to do things, and he's begging. He's at the feet of Jesus begging his enemy to come and heal his daughter. And then he does something else that's unexpected. He waits, and here's why he waits. Because Jesus turns to go with them, and it says, As Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house to heal the daughter, the crowds almost crushed him. I don't know if you've ever been in crowded situations. For me, that would be India. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Because you, you, you get off the plane in India, and you get on this, like, van, and you go to a village, and they'll, go, they'll drive the cars as far as they can drive them. And then the cars are no longer useful because there's so many people on the road and rickshaws and bikes. And so you, you have to walk where you're going. And you, can't, you walk like this. You're kind of just carried along by the crowd because there's just no space. That's what Jesus was experiencing here. This was like a crowd of people around him. Jairus is with him. He's trying to get to his daughter. And have you ever been late for work? And that's when you encounter the train right? The long train. You pull onto your street that's never full of traffic, and there's traffic. We used to live near Columbia, South Carolina, and so you'd get on the interstate in Irmo, and you'd go, um, it's like, you know, 10 miles into downtown Columbia, and you could always tell when there'd been a wreck, right? Because there's no one moving. Stand still. You find yourself mad at the person who had a wreck. You're not praying for them. You're just mad at them because they're going to make you late. That's what Jairus is feeling right now. He's like, uh, Jesus, we need to get to my house. My daughter is dying. You need to get there now. And then, big crowd. He's held up. And Jairus waits. A man who's used to snapping his fingers and getting what he wants immediately has to wait. And he does. And as he's waiting on the crowd, something else happens. The desperate woman shows up. It says that a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. Now, what we know about this woman in Luke is just that one verse, right? But if you read this parallel in Matthew and Mark, you learn a little bit more about this lady. Not only has she been bleeding for 12 years, and I can't even imagine that. It wasn't like, you know, like she cut herself and needed a Band-Aid. I mean, she was literally bleeding. A lot of people think like uterus bleeding. She's bleeding. It's, they can't stop it. So she's hemorrhaging for 12 years. And what that means is as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been bleeding, 12 years old, and she's been bleeding for 12 years. It means that for 12 years, she's not been touched. She's been rejected because according to the law in that day, if you were bleeding, you were unclean. And if you were unclean and you touched anything else, it became unclean. 
So if you were bleeding and you were unclean, no one's holding your hand at the dinner table. You go to the football game and your team scores. They're like high-fiving everybody. Oh, but not you. You're unclean. You're not getting touched. She's been 12 years without being touched. Not only is she bleeding and alone, she's broke. It's funny that Luke is a doctor, so he leaves out the detail about how doctors didn't help her. I think that's really cool. But if you read Matthew and Mark, what you'll find is this, that she has been to every doctor that she can find, and she has paid every, about, every bit of money she has. And, the, and not only is she not healed, those accounts say that she's worse off for it. It sounds a lot like healthcare in America, doesn't it? <laughs> you pay a lot of money to get tests run, and the doctors say, we have no idea what it is. Well, thank you. Can I have my money back, please? Uh, that's not how it works, right? She's broke. She's bleeding. She's alone. She's untouched. And she's desperate. And instead of hiding in her desperation, she let it drive her to Jesus. She came up behind him, verse 44, and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. I'm going to say this. I love immediate miracles. Don't you? This happened immediately. She's not struggling with it anymore. She touched the hem of his garment, and just like that, the bleeding stopped. But what else stopped? The crush of the crowd. The whole crowd stopped because Jesus stopped immediately, and he said something. He said, who touched me? Now, how many of you are, um, you're the captain obvious of your family? Let me see your hands. Okay, be proud of it. Be proud of it. So when you speak, your whole family's like, duh, right? Um, so Peter, Peter's like Captain Obvious in the Bible. Peter's the guy that I can relate to. He says things, and Jesus is just like, thank you for your insight, Peter. <laughs> Captain Obvious, right? Jesus, Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter says, um, everybody? Like, look around, Jesus. Like, you're here. Everybody is touching you. Look, Jesus, I'm touching you right now. Touch, 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 touch. Elbow, elbow, bump. I'm doing it right now. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. What do you mean, who touched me? Like, if we could reenact this story right here in downtown Albemarle, it would look like this. Jesus in the middle, a bunch of people around him with their cameras up like this, angle just right, getting a selfie with Jesus. Selfie sticks everywhere, right? Because people want to be around Jesus. People were drawn to Jesus. Let me just say this. If, if people are not drawn to you as you follow Jesus, something's wrong. Because in the Bible, Jesus had no trouble with crowds. People were drawn to Jesus. And it's the same here. And so Peter's like, what do you mean who touched you? Just look around. I mean, I know you're the Lord and all, but look around. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Not that kind of touch. Somebody touched me. Because power has been released from me. And there's a lesson there for us. It's not enough to be around Jesus. It's not. I mean, it's not enough to wear Christian t-shirts, crosses, bumper stickers on our car. It's not enough to be around him. you got to touch him. A lot of people were around Jesus, and they were bumping up into Jesus. And they were, you know, Christian concert here. And church service, you know, once a month. And just, like, there's nothing wrong with church and concerts. There's nothing wrong with t-shirts. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. 
But doing those things without intentionally touching Jesus will never release power. The power comes when we intentionally touch Jesus. So this lady needed a breakthrough, and so she decided to push through. She pushed through people, potential rejection, embarrassment. Jairus pushed through the risk of losing his position. What do you push through? What do we push through when we need something from Jesus? Sometimes we just, hey, Jesus, like if you're real and you're there, just fix it. She had to push through. She wasn't going to let anything get in her way. Again, like, have you ever, I've done this, gone somewhere, heard a speaker, maybe it was a preacher, maybe it's at a conference, they really touched you, and then when it's all over with, you want to talk to that speaker, right? And so what do you do? We go to the front. We try to get there before anybody else does, but we get there a little bit late. And so there's like, you know, five, six, seven, eight people, 100 people, whatever, trying to talk to that speaker. And you're just there like, if I just focus really hard, they'll see me and I'll glow and they'll just feel drawn to me, right? Like, and eventually what happens? More than often than not, we just leave. We don't, we don't push through obstacles. This lady pushed through. She's like, I, I'm going to touch Jesus. It's not going to be enough to be around. I'm going to touch Jesus. And immediately her bleeding stopped. And if you can relate to desperation, then I want you today to meet a Savior of desperate people. This is the Jesus that she met, that Jairus met. This woman met Jesus, and Jesus changed her. And I love that. He didn't just heal her. He changed her. So he says, who touched me? Somebody touched me because power went out from me. And I love the next verse. It says, then the woman, (laughs) seeing that she could not go unnoticed. It's like, if I could hide, if I could just hide, I would do it. Snap, man, I can't get out of this. He's not moving. He's stopping. He's He's scanning the crowd, and I'm pretty sure he's looking right through me. So she knew she couldn't go unnoticed. And I want you to know this. When you get touched by the power of God, you can't hide it. You can't. There's an epidemic in the American church, and this is the epidemic. I want to be all in with Jesus, but I want to not be too weird. It's an epidemic. People who go all in on anything look weird. The Olympics are on right now. We will celebrate people who have been weird all their lives. They have not gone to parties. They have not gone to movies. They have not eaten food that you and I would eat. They have been weird all their lives. And the result will be gold medals. And we will applaud that. But then we want to go all in with Jesus and not pay any price for it. We don't want to look weird. She said, like, I can't go unnoticed. The power of God has touched me, and I am different. I am changed. I can't go unnoticed. It probably also didn't help that my guess is in the crowd, (laughs) there were people that were like, yo, Jesus. It was her. (laughs) Like they're pointing her out. And so it says that she came to him. She fell at his feet trembling. And she said this. She said why she had done what she did. And then he said to her, daughter, verse 48, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. 
he called her daughter. Just, just put yourself, it's not hard for the women to do, but um, guys, put yourself in her position, okay? I know we think we like to be in our man caves alone, but I watched the show alone, and I know for a fact that men don't like to be alone, right? So you've been alone for 12 years. You've never been touched for 12 years. 12 years, no one's touched you. There's not been a hint of intimacy in your life in 12 years. If, if she had a family, she doesn't now. Because there's no way a man stuck around for this. And the first words you hear is daughter. Jesus didn't heal her. Jesus changed her identity. He changed her identity. Not only did he change her identity, this is, this is such a big moment between heaven and earth. She is the only woman that Jesus ever calls daughter in the Bible. The only one. You, you, you think that Jesus doesn't see where you are? You think that your desperation doesn't matter to him? Man, he sees you. He knows where you are. He sees like crying when no one's around. He sees this, man, if somebody would just accept me for who I am and love me for who I am. He sees how hard we try to be accepted by everybody else. And he heals our bodies. For sure he healed her, but he did something a whole lot greater. He healed something on the inside. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And Jesus, that's the Savior of desperate people. He didn't look at her and go, okay, I took care of you. Get out. I got other people to take care of. The, the Savior of desperate people is gracious and compassionate. He sees us where we are. He loves us where we are. And he gives us all that he has to give. And I love that about Jesus. And while all that's happening and people are going crazy and they're clapping for this woman. Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And said, your daughter is dead. That was such an appropriate cry because it's the sad part of the story. <laughs> your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Now, before we finish this up, let me just say, I, I've grown up in church. And so faith is a churchy word. And so um, sometimes you hear faith. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know what faith means. Faith means that you're bold, that you never doubt, that you never waver, that you are steadfast, that you're stubborn, that you tell people what to do and you believe it. And I think we see that in the woman, right? We saw that in the woman. She was like, nothing's going to get in my way of Jesus. I'm going after Jesus. I don't care if I have to push people out of the way. I don't care if I just, like, bleed on them a little bit so they'll move. I don't know. What I, whatever I have to do, I'm going to get to Jesus. I see that. But we don't see that with Jairus. And I just want you to see how Jesus responded graciously to both of them. Jairus is waiting, right? Now, he's the man of power. Nobody's used to waiting. He's used to saying jump. People say how high. And now he's like, come on. Oh, God. Now there's this bleeding woman. I've heard of her. And here she is. Great. My daughter's dying. She's bleeding. What? Holy cow. Jesus just healed her. She's clean now. What? Man, this is going to be great. I got to get Jesus my. Don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. And you know what Jairus didn't do? Jairus did not turn in bold, strong faith to Jesus and say, let's go anyway. Come on, I know who you are. Let's go. You can raise her from the dead. Jairus didn't say anything. 
But what did Jesus say? I'm going anyway. It's going to be okay. Listen, just so you know, okay? And I'm talking to you as somebody who's been in desperate situations. I'll be there again. Sometimes desperate situations make us, like, we get bold, right? And we just like, nothing's going to stop me. But sometimes desperate situations kick us in the gut. And you don't have any strength to say anything. And that's where Jairus was. And God is still gracious to those desperate people. I love that about Jesus. And he said to Jairus, we're going anyway. And then he got there, and everybody's weeping and wailing because she died. And he says, she's not dead. And everybody laughs at Jesus, right? People still laugh at Jesus today. And he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. So he takes his disciples in, two of them in, takes the parents in, grabs her hand, lifts her up, calls her child, says, give her something to eat. Raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Listen, this is the Savior of desperate people. He doesn't treat us harshly. He treats us with compassion. He hears the cry, even if you can't verbalize it. I know that we've been in positions where we were desperate to have children. And it was hard to verbalize that. Sometimes you try to verbalize it and it comes out like a wail, right? It's like... God says, I heard what you said. I'm like, how? I don't, know. I don't even know what I said. He, he knows. Some of you have been, you're in situations right now. They keep you up at night. I want you to know that he hears you. He's a God who hears desperate people. And he moves toward them. And he meets them. I love that about Jesus. What I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to, you've got to see this. Our world tells us this, that desperate times call for desperate measures. So we face desperate times, and here's what we do. Um, we, we go buy a book, or we watch a show, or we, um, we, we try to learn some secret formula that if we say it enough times, it'll get us out of that situation, out of that mess, right? But desperate times don't call for desperate measures. Desperate times call for divine measures. That's your big idea. I want you to remember that. Desperate, measure, desperate times call for divine measures. When we're desperate, we don't have the answer, right? So we've got to let that desperation drive us to Jesus. And so here's a, here's a little a sentence. It's got a lot of Asian words in it, okay? So hang with me. It says, desperation leads to activation, and activation leads to transformation. And that's what God's after, right? He wants to transform our lives. He really doesn't just want to heal us. He doesn't just want to fix the problem that's made you desperate. He wants to transform you. And so this woman and this man, they were so desperate that they took action. Their desperation led to activation. They moved towards Jesus. And then Jesus was activated as well. And power was released from him. And all that activation led to transformation. A woman who was bleeding was no longer bleeding. And a girl who was dead was no longer dead. And a, a woman and a man never lived the same lives after that. And that's my prayer this morning for you and for me. Is that we would see his power transform us. That we would do what these desperate people did and we would reach out to Jesus. And, and so just before we close and we pray. Desperate times call for divine measures. And so how do we begin to access divine measures? We reach out, right? 
I mean, we don't literally have Jesus standing here, <laughs> and we're not going to, you know, like, jump the pews and, you know, come touch him. But Jesus is here. How do you reach out and touch Jesus? You do it by praying. You, you do it through worship. You do it through calling out to him. You do it through the word. That's how we touch Jesus. You do it by sitting honestly before him and saying, I don't even know what to say, but I'm here. That's how you touch Jesus. You take steps. I think you have a quote on your note sheet from Martin Luther King, something like, faith is the first step, something similar to that. You may not see all of the steps, but just to take the first step. And I think that's how it was with these two. They didn't know how it was going to turn out, but they knew I had to take a, I've got to take a step towards Jesus. So just before um, we, we, we're going to kind of wrap this up with, with um, Angie just singing, and I'm going to give you the, the chance to respond. Um, let me tell you what this is going to look like. When I, when I was um, a teenager and I got saved, I, I, mean, I, I got radically changed. Radically. I mean, my, Laura's here, you know, my family would tell you, I mean, that, that's, my story's no different than your story. I mean, but there was a radical transformation in my life. And, and I, I remember when that started to wane a little bit, you know, you kind of get used to church and you kind of, you get a new routine and, you know, you used to do the party scene, but now you do the church scene. And it's like, it's just, sometimes it can feel a little bit like a rut. And, and I remember asking, I started telling God, like, I don't want that anymore. Like, I want to be, I want to be all in with you again. And he started to, as I just moved towards Jesus and I started to kind of like touch, you know, like we read in this story, touch the hem of his garment. And just kind of press into him. You know, push. I love that push acronym. Pray until something happens. Push. I love that. As I started to do that in my life, he started to reignite that fire in me. And so I went through this really awkward time in church. And I'm so thankful that I had pastors that did not take advantage of this because they really could have made me look bad. <laughs> I was in this, this stretch in my life where it didn't matter what the altar call was for, I was going. Right? They could have been like, if you are an angry, bitter woman, come to the front. I was going. I was going. I mean, there's no way around it. I was just going to the front because in my head, pushing to Jesus just equated with moving to the front whenever there was a chance to. I want that for you. Now, there's nothing magic here at all, but there is something about taking a step. There's something about saying to Jesus, I'm so desperate in this situation and nobody else can help me, only you can, that I'm willing to come to the front. And it'll cost you something, right? It'll cost you something. Um, all that was great and then I became a youth pastor. And so then you're on the front row of a church because you're paid to be there and the preacher is talking and he says something that really resonates with you, you know, like something that you should probably repent for. And then he gives an altar call, and I mean, you're sitting there going, do I go? Like, if I go, do I get fired? I mean, how's that going to work out? And I'm just telling you, it's so easy to rationalize in your head all the reasons that you shouldn't risk it. But I'm telling you to risk it. Risk it. And just press into Jesus and see what he'll do.